Our New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecutions that took place over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except Jews. But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of them became believers and turned to the Lord. News of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many of people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. At that time, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of Claudius. The disciples determined that according to their ability, each would send relief to the believers living in Judea. This they did, sending it to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The gospel reading is from John chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said to the Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, who is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and runs away, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because a hired hand does not care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your love, for your presence with us, for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word and your spirit, and we pray now that you would be with us and bless us as we attend to your scriptures. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You are our rock and redeemer. Amen. What is God like? It's an important question and kind of never gets old. 
wherever you are in your own spiritual journey. If you're someone who's been uh, you know, a Christian for a long time, you have maybe decades of faith experience, uh, that's still a fresh question for you as, you're, as you wrestle with day-to-day realities, as you, as you live in relationship to God. What is God like? Or if you're new to the faith, perhaps you're just exploring, you're, um, you're curious, you know, you might um, consider yourself to be spiritual but not religious, or you've just walked in the door because of some relationship or circumstance that has brought you here, and you're just beginning to consider the faith, who is Jesus, what might this mean for me? That question, what is God like, is very relevant for you as well. Or if you're in the space, maybe even most relevant, of, of deconstruction. You're someone who's grown up in the faith. You've been, you've been here for a while, but you know, the last several years have been challenging and have caused you to see things you haven't seen before. Uh, maybe the faith that you grew up with as a youth is no, no longer feeling satisfactory, and you're trying to make sense of what you believe now, where you are now. Wherever you are, we're glad you're here. You're not alone. There are other people in your same kind of situation. And for all of us, wherever you are today in your own spiritual journey, this question, what is God like, is of first importance. What is God like? I know we're doing a series on the book of Acts this summer and into the fall, but I really do want to spend a moment looking at this gospel reading on an occasion such as today, because I think it helps us answer this question in a really important way, what is God like? in a way that's particularly relevant as we've ordained and installed new officers to the church. Because shepherding is a primary metaphor for leadership in the church. It's also a primary metaphor that Jesus has taken to himself and described of himself. And what we learn as we read the New Testament, as we open the scriptures, as we hear the confession of the apostles, as they proclaim the good news of God and what God is doing in the world, what we discover is that God is like Jesus. That is actually the message of the New Testament that you could boil it down to in a nutshell. In the words of the apostle Paul, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the one in whom we see what God is like. In the words of the, right, of the writer of Hebrews, right? And in many times, in various ways, God spoke through the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken in a son who is the exact imprint of his nature. Or if you just want to go straight to the source and take it from Jesus himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What is God like? God is like Jesus. And that's a reality that's hard for us to hold on to or even accept sometimes because our answer, what is God like, is often a function of our projections. We project onto God whatever we imagine God to be like based on our experiences, our ideas, our relationships. And we come up with these notions of what is God like? God is like an angry judge who's mad at me or mad at them. Or what is God like? God is like a negligent parent. Or what is God like? God is like the cosmic vending machine who exists to support my agenda and give me what, my, give me what I want, right? God is there to further my cause. We come up with these ideas of what God is like when we begin in any other place other than in Jesus himself we start with our own ideas, we start with our own experiences, we come up with some notion of what God must be like. 
which we either fear or feel entitled to some sort of provision from the cosmic vending machine or whatever. But we start with Jesus. If we really want to know what God is like, we have to start with Jesus because he is the image of the invisible God. He is the one who is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the one, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. What is God like? God is like Jesus. What is Jesus like? He's the good shepherd. This passage from John chapter 10 is a beautiful one in which Jesus declares himself to be this good shepherd who has been the one that the people have longed for for so long. He's the one who knows his people. He's the one who leads, who cares for, who protects his people. Ultimately, he'll be the one who lays down his life for his people, who will die in their place, who will be raised by the Father, and who will bring forth into the world resurrection life and hope. This good shepherd image stands in contrast to a couple of foils if you will. One is explicit here in the text where Jesus talks about the difference between the good shepherd and the hired hand, right? The hired hand is just in it for the money, right? The hired hand is shepherding the flock because it's a job. It's an opportunity. And, you know, the gig, it's worth the pay. And so they take up the job and they do it. But what happens when the wolf comes? The hired hand flees because this work of leading the people is no longer worth it right? The threat is too great. And that cost-benefit analysis no longer checks out, and it's no longer worth it to lead and to serve and to protect. And so when the wolf comes, the hired hand flees, but the good shepherd stays. But there's another contrast here that's implicit. And it's the contrast between the good shepherd and what the prophets called the false shepherds. You see, anyone in Jesus's day who would have been listening to this, the the Jewish audience that he was speaking to would have in their minds the prophet Ezekiel and this image of God the shepherd rescuing the people from the false shepherds. And there, the hope is that the religious leaders of the time who've gone bad would be overthrown by God who is good, who would provide a just and good leader. Where the people have become oppressed by false shepherds who are relating to the flock, not opportunistically, like the hired hands, but exploitatively, right? The false shepherds, they don't flee when the wolf comes. The false shepherds, they are the wolf. The good shepherd is different. And the call, just to put a little charge in there to Mike and to Dan and to all the others, who are ordained and set apart to lead and serve this community, our calling is to live into the likeness of the good shepherd, to love, to lead, to serve, to protect, to lay down our life for the flock in a way that doesn't look like the hired hand where when it gets hard, we bail. And it doesn't look like the false shepherd where we leverage our authority to take advantage of the people who've given it to us but rather to live as the good shepherd who lives out of love, who lives sacrificially toward the flock and toward the world. This is the calling 
of leaders in the church. It's the calling of actually every follower of Jesus, where in our baptism, we are joined to him, not just to be part of his family, but to be participants in his mission. And both the means and the ends of God's mission are made manifest to us in Jesus. The mission of God is not a colonial enterprise where we go forth and conquer by force. The mission of God is a life-giving, peace-bringing, justice-establishing mission in the world, animated by God's Spirit, carried out in the world by the means of Jesus who laid down his life in love. He didn't flex his muscles and crush. And so we go forth into the world united to our crucified and risen Savior to live like the good shepherd in our various spheres of influence in the world, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, with the people who are difficult to love, in your social media world, for those of you who hang out there, to be present in a way that resembles the good shepherd, who is Jesus, who shows us also what God is like. Now, as we track with the story of Acts, if we can come back to this story, because this is what our sermon series really has been over the summer. It really is the story of what happens when God's people, made alive by God's spirit, begin to take seriously that God is like Jesus. And that what God is doing in the world is the stuff Jesus was doing in the earth. And what we see in this passage, as we've seen all along in this story, is that God is surprising to them. That what God is doing at this stage in the story is actually unprecedented. And the people who are following Jesus into the world, this community of the Spirit, they are following behind the Spirit who goes ahead of them, right? We've seen it all along where this story begins with Jesus having been raised from the dead, is now walking the earth for 40 days, talking about this reign of God, the kingdom of God, and what it's like. And then he ascends up into heaven and he tells his people, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promised gift. And they get the promised gift at Pentecost. It's the Spirit, where the ascended and enthroned Jesus receives from the Father the gift of the Spirit and then pours it out upon the church in power and love, like we just prayed, burning as fire, gentle as a dove. And this Spirit-filled church then begins to go forward into the world doing what Jesus told them they would do. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in the next region, Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And this is what we begin to see happening. And so that we see these followers of Jesus first in Jerusalem, then in the wider regions. And now, as we get to these parts of the book of Acts, we're now getting into the ends of the earth territory as this community continues to travel, as the spirit continues to go on the move, doing new and surprising things. And now we find these disciples in this place called Antioch, which is in Syria to the north of Israel. And in this story, what we see is something I think that is profoundly instructive for us as we begin to live as people who take seriously that God is like Jesus and that our calling is to relate to God who is like Jesus in the way Jesus related to God because we're joined to him. What we'll see is that there's some instructions for us in this text, I think, about what that might look like in our context. And the first is this. Well, I'll, I'll just spill the beans. I'll tell you all of them. Open. The church is open to God. Attentive. 
The church is attentive to God's presence and the movement of the Spirit. Practicing solidarity. The church has this deep sense of we belong to one another as we belong to God. And then generosity. We see the church here in Antioch moved by this news of famine where they begin to open up their bank accounts and their pockets, their resources, and give generously to the church in another region that's in need. Open. I'm moved in the book of Acts by how these disciples are not leading out of their own strategy and vision, but out of their discernment of what God is doing. They really don't have a clenched fist grip on what they need or want or expect from their religious practices. They are starting from a different place than we are. I mean, I think if any of you and I, if we're just to be honest, if you think about your own spiritual life, your own participation in the church, your own participation maybe in religious practices, most of us begin from this inevitable starting point of, I am the author of my story and I'm looking for X, Y, or Z, right? I want this from my life. Maybe religion can help me feel that or experience that. I want to be this kind of person. Maybe being part of a church or doing something religious might help me do that. We are Westerners, most of us, and we are inevitably shaped by the realities of middle-class Western society where free association is the name of the game, right? I opt into what I wanna opt into. I opt out of what I can avoid that I don't want, right? I use my resources to insulate myself from threats or ex bad experiences I don't wanna have, and I use them to opt into good things that I want to do. This is the nature of Western society that we live in, and we automatically start from a very individualistic starting point, all of us, as we begin to think about our lives. That's not where they start from. These disciples aren't looking to layer into their lives some sort of religious practice to enrich their otherwise you know, um, status quo kind of life. They're starting with the reality of God is God and God is at work. And they're following and getting involved. They are on an open-ended journey, not a closed circle of a life plan that may or may not include religion or God or Jesus or the spirit or whatever to the extent that it fits their vision of a good life. They are on an open-ended, we don't know where it's going kind of a journey. And I think the call for us today is to be on that kind of journey as well. God is God. And the calling isn't to figure out how to, you know, go through the cafeteria line of life, as it were, and to add to our plate the bits of Christianity or religion or spirituality that we like or download sermons from this place or take up community group life over here. No, the calling is to know God, to love God, to love neighbor, and to join God in what God is doing, whatever that may be. It's a posture of openness, which then implies a need for attentiveness. That second thing, right? These people are attentive to the movement of the Spirit. And what they experience when they pay attention to the movement of the Spirit is that God is actually bringing together people who don't belong together in a way that's scandalous. The scandalous unity of the New Testament church is lost on us because it just isn't weird in our context for the kinds of people groups that are being joined in the New Testament era to be together. The big scandal in the New Testament is that Jewish people and non-Jewish people are now being one as a family. 
that's not that weird for us. But it was profoundly unsettling for them. And the important thing for us to recognize is that what the, what the Spirit is doing on the heels of the resurrection of Jesus, as the new creation of God is dawning in the world and the Spirit goes forth from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, what the Spirit is doing is bringing together people who otherwise would never belong together and making them one family. And then that one family of people joined together in Jesus is having to work out costly unity across profound differences. And this is really the whole drama of the early church. And what's instructive for us today is we usually opt out of costly unity because we prefer the superficial unity of uniformity. Maybe we all believe the same thing or we all like the same style of whatever, or we all kind of generally are on the same wavelength or we vibe together and we don't frustrate one another or exasperate one another. And so we opt into groups that are similar to us, that don't push on us, that don't frustrate us because it's comfortable, it's easy, it's what we do. But the unity of the church isn't that kind of a unity. The common denominator of God's people isn't similar preferences or cultural similarities, but it is quite simply those joined to the crucified and risen Jesus. In other words, the unity of the church is not something God has left up to people to establish. It's something God has established in Christ, and he now calls us into participating in that unity with Jesus to find our sameness only in our belonging to Jesus. That is really hard for us to wrap our minds around, much less practice. And it was hard for them to do the same. But this is the story of the apostolic church. And this is the good news that we bear as the church in a profoundly polarized and divided society. Our calling is to embody the costly, deep, and rich unity of the church that doesn't look like the divisive, polarized factions of either the church in our society or the broader society at large. We need a renewal in the church. We need a renewal of unity. Which brings us to that third point of solidarity. These people practiced solidarity. They recognized that they belong to God and to one another. They could recognize that we're in this together, we're on the same team. What, what's happening in one part of the world to this family is happening to us by extension because we belong to one another. They don't have a not my problem attitude to the grievances or the needs of others. But when news of famine comes, they feel it as their own situation that calls forth from them a particular kind of faithfulness, which is generosity, that last point. They actually dig into their own resources and come up with an offering to provide for a church that is in need. And that's a beautiful story. And it's something that I think we at Resurrection long to live into. It's something that we do practice, but we want to grow into practicing more. 
If you were here at Easter time, you know we took up a, an offering to support the church in Ukraine that's undergoing its own kind of famine at this time in this war-torn part of the world. And so we wanted to come alongside our sisters and brothers in this other part of the world and to come up out of our plenty to help and come alongside their need. So that when we say we stand with Ukraine, it's not just a tweet or like a blue and yellow filter on our Facebook photo or whatever, but it's something meaningful. We want a kind of unity that's real and robust. We want a kind of generosity that matters and makes a difference. And we want to get involved with God and what God is doing in the world. And there are ways that we do that. There are ways that we want to grow into doing that more. But I really think for the future of our church, as we, believe, as we, as we, want to, as we, we talk about what do we want to be, where are we going, where is God at work in us and leading us, I really do believe that openness to God, attentiveness to where the Spirit is active, solidarity with one another and with our fellow human beings, with the other churches and congregations also in this city. We're on the same team. We're not competitors. We're teammates. We're siblings. We're members of one family. We belong to Jesus, and our unity is in Jesus alone. Who cares about the disagreements and differences that we have? We're one family. Coming together as the body of Christ in solidarity and then moving out of generosity to get involved with God and what God is doing in the world. I was talking with one of our elders a couple weeks ago, and he made a comment that struck me. He said, our congregation has a habit of being more generous with our money than with our time. And that really struck me because I, I, I think it's true. I think this is one of the challenges, I think, of, of just where we are societally probably is it's easier sometimes to give financially than it is to actually make a commitment to show up. But I think what we see in this story of Acts is we see what a community of disciples looks like. It's people who are wanting to be and seeking to be involved with one another and on mission with God in such a way that it's, it's, it's all of the above. It's not just a one-dimensional kind of generosity of whatever contribution I can make that hurts the least, but it's a full-bodied, full-personed participation, time, talent, and treasure, as they say, of throwing their whole selves in to get involved with God. And there's a worship dimension to that. There's a community dimension to that of belonging to one another. And there's a missional dimension to that of being witnesses to Jesus, to the ends of the earth. And our calling as resurrection, as we head into this fall, you know, this is the first fall in three years that's been anything close to normal. And in a city like ours, where there's a revolving door, where every summer and fall, you got people moving to the city, you've got people starting new grad programs or new undergrad programs or taking up new jobs. Summer and fall, we have people coming in a lot. And every spring and early summer, the revolving door goes the other way, right? And we say goodbye as people move on from Philadelphia and go out to wherever they're going. And we bless and send members of our community to the ends of the earth. For two and a half years, our exit door has been wide open and our entry door has been blocked. This is the first fall since 2019 where we have people coming to the city and we have habits of gathering where we can be in one another's homes more or less safely. Now, I'm not 
telling you what to do, right? I mean, we all have our own comfort levels, our own senses of what's wise in our own situations. But this isn't 2020. And this isn't even 2021. We're in a very different time now. And, and our habits of gathering are beginning to look very different. And they're beginning to look more like 2019 than 2020. In other words, it's the first time we're able to practice the kind of hospitality to newcomers that we used to practice and that we're called to practice in this way. And so what will it look like for us as a church this fall to rise to that occasion and to be the church for this city? Will we give of our time? Will we show up? Will we be present to one another? Will we get involved? Will we serve? Will we help out with small things? Will we help out at Emmanuel? We're going to start up having the meal inside again in the fall. We're going to have sit-down meal for neighbors experiencing hunger and homelessness in this place. We're going to need hands. We're going to need people to serve, people to cook, people to clean up. Will we be the church that shows up? Will we be the church that jumps in and commits, not just with our dollars, but with our hours, with our bodies, with our prayers, with our conversations, with our homes? Will we be present to one another and present to God, open, attentive, in solidarity, generously? This is our invitation, I believe, as we begin to live into life with God who is like Jesus and live into the world as those who bear his name, bear the belovedness of his love, we get to go forth into the world as those who live as like little good shepherds in union with our good shepherd and a community that tries to take up life like that. My prayer for us this fall is that God would give us every grace and every gift that we need to take up community life once again in that rich and life-giving way, practicing that costly unity that is beautiful and good and compelling and different so that we might be like these people who were first called Christians at Antioch because they didn't have another word that would work for them because outside observers are looking on them and they're like, well, they're not, I mean, they're not really like the Jewish community. I mean, they're half Jewish maybe, but they're now they're doing a different thing. We don't have a word for that. What if we could live in such a way that was so beautiful and so compelling and so different from just all the other narratives that are out there that you just would almost have to find a different word to describe it? I'm hungry for that. Maybe you are too. I promise you our world is. And God is at work in the world. And the good news is that we get to be involved because God is like Jesus, the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after the one, who lays down his life for his sheep, who knows you and loves you and feeds you and guides you and protects you, who watches over us without slumbering or sleeping. Do not fear, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful for your love. Thank you for Jesus and the way you make yourself known to us in him. Would you help us to believe that you really are like Jesus, embracing us just as we are, yet not being content to leave us where we are, but to bring us along with you home, to life with you in the land of the living, in your kingdom of peace and justice and wholeness that you promise will last on the earth forever. God, would you 
enliven us today by your Holy Spirit in such a way that as we imagine our own futures, that our imagination would be shaped not by our own tiny little hopes and dreams of the little kingdoms we can make for ourselves, but that our imagination would be shaped by your grand vision of a world set right, of a humanity that thrives in relationship with you and one another and the earth. And would you give us grace today and this week and this fall to embody that in a compelling way that we may be renewed and that your weary and weeping world may be blessed. We need you. And so we ask for your help, good shepherd, through Christ our Lord. Amen.